the hardest question you've ever been asked? The hardest question you can think of. I was reading this week about a candidate who went in for a job interview. And during the interview, they were asked what their greatest strength was. And the candidate said, well, my greatest strength is I'm very, very observant. So the interviewer said, well, I'll tell you what, how about leave for five minutes? Be out for five minutes, come back in five minutes. So sure enough, the candidate left for five minutes, came back in after five minutes, and the interviewer said, okay, since you were in the room last, what has changed? What has changed? The candidate looked around, couldn't quite figure it out, didn't have an answer. So... Do you? Go ahead. Most of you are sitting at home. You can say it out loud. It's fine. What's your answer to the question, what had changed? Well, the interviewer finally looked at the candidate and said, the thing that's changed is the hands on the clock. That's what's changed since you've been in the room last. Now, for most of us, we wish that was our most difficult question, right? That just something about the the clock would be as difficult as it gets. But the reality is, the difficult questions in life are not always about the clock. And the most difficult questions in life are rarely asked from other people. The most difficult questions are usually questions we're asking in our own hearts and our own minds. Questions like, why? Why is this happening? Why is this going the way it goes? Why have things turned out this way? Why are people so difficult? Why am I so sad? Why am I so angry? Why am I so frustrated? Why am I so depressed? Why do I have so much despair? Why are my bills so high? Why can't I seem to get ahead? Why can't I seem to get enough sleep? Why can't I seem to get better? Why don't the doctors have more answers? Why is it so hard to lose someone? Why, God? Why? There's a lot of whys in life. A lot of questions in life. A lot of difficult questions in life. And we don't always get the answers that we're hoping for from those questions. So what do we do? What do we do when we're not getting the answers? What do we do with all the whys in life? And what do we do with the things that come with the whys in life? About 3,000 years ago, the psalmists seemed to be going through every single one of those why questions I just mentioned, all at the same time, at the same moment. So what do he do? When, when all the whys of life came pressing on him, What did he do? How did he deal with it? Let's see if we can find out. Looking at Psalm 43, beginning with verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. The psalmist has been wronged. He's been wronged by an ungodly nation. He's been wronged by deceitful people, people who are unjust, people behind the scenes being deceptive, 
doing the wrong thing, stirring up conflict, stirring up controversy, ruining reputations, bringing down people's work. We can't make any connections with that, can we? We can't make any connection with ungodliness in a country or, or deceit among men and women in a country, right? We, we can't make that connection. Just proof that the Bible is a wasted old book that doesn't help us in modern times. If you're not picking up on my sarcastic tone, let me put it another way. It is somewhat easy for us to believe that this is the worst time in the history of the world. Partly because we're alive right now. So naturally, it feels like all that's happening seems to be the worst right now. But I have some advice, hopefully, to to counter that. And I might also say this before I share this advice, that we all have the opportunity to reject or receive this advice. To, to take it in, to embrace it, or to ignore it. And the truth is, for a lot of us, we're so hyped up right now with wanting things back to normal. We're so hyped up right now with frustration or, or anger or fear. We're so hyped up right now with social media and the news and the talk radio and, and almost everything else in life that our eyes of our heart are almost waiting to roll at this advice. Like, we just, we just don't want it. We don't, we don't want to hear anything of truth. We just want what we want. So we can receive it or we can reject it, but for the glory of God, because I love you and really because I love me, here's the advice from King Solomon. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9. So, there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. Nothing Scenarios are different. Circumstances are different. The characters are different. The masks are different. The names are different. The titles are different. The accusations are different. But underneath all of it is the exact same thing, and that's sin. Underneath all of it is the same thing. There's nothing new about sin and the consequences of sin. Nothing new. What is sin? Apostle Paul was writing the folks at Ephesus and he was trying to encourage them about how God had been pursuing them with his grace through Jesus. Now, just I want you to make a connection. God is pursuing you with his grace through the birth, death, life, resurrection, and return. Of Jesus. God is pursuing you with his grace. And this is what Paul wrote to the church, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Now, I don't mean to oversimplify things, but but at the end of the day, there's, there's two choices in life. You move toward God or you move away from God. There are no other options. And so sin, by definition, is moving away from God. 
It's moving according to the course of the world, the tendencies of the world, the habits of the world, the attitudes of the world. Sin is a moving away from God, moving toward those tendencies, toward those attitudes. Don't miss this, past, present, or future. In other words, a desire to have things like they used to be, if we're not careful, will be a little God of the past to us. Or to have things like we want them in the present, if we're not careful, will be a little God to us. And to to want to innovate and change and rise above the now, if we're not careful, will become a little God of the future to us. See, we can have little gods of the past and little gods of the present and little gods of the future. And so Paul, in, in writing the church, he's, he's trying to help the church see, be careful. Be careful that you forget that you once were dead in your sin. That you once were dead in your trespasses. But now you've been made alive. Now, let me say this. There's nothing evil about the past, the present, and the future. Okay, there's nothing. There's, there's nothing evil about uh, wanting things the way they used to be or wanting things you want them now or, or wanting things the way you want them to be in the future. There's nothing evil about those things in and of themselves. When they become evil is when they become the course of our lives. When they become the way that we think and act and talk and text and post and write and argue and debate and everything else in the world. When the attitudes and tendencies of the world become who we are. That is when we almost have to ask ourselves the question, am I still dead in my sin? When it comes to sin, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. There's, there's nothing new. Sin is walking in the habits and the attitudes and the tendencies of the world in such a way that those things are more important to you than being right with God. They're more demanding of your time and your energy and your thoughts than being right with God. The joy of being right with God. How about as believers, our tendency, first and most, when we watch the news, when we scroll through social media, when we are listening to the radio, our tendencies, when we hear bad news, when we hear news we don't like, when things are not the way we want them to be, our tendency should be to say, I once was dead in my sin. Now I'm alive in Christ. That should be our tendency. Let me just confess for all of us, it ain't always. It's not. Far too often our tendency is toward sin. C.S. Lewis has a description of sin using pride. And I think it's super, super helpful. It goes like this. Pride is the movement whereby a creature tries to set up on its own to exist for itself. Such a sin requires no complex social conditions, no extended experience, no great intellectual development. 
From the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and of itself as self, the terrible alternative of choosing God or self for the sinner is open to it. was the center of your life. Because pride and sin will give you an option. It's going to be God or it's going to be you. What's, what's the center? C.S. Lewis goes on. This sin is committed daily by young children and ignorant peasants, as well as by sophisticated persons, by solitaries, no less than that by those who live in society. It is the fall in every individual life and in each day of each individual life, the basic sin behind all particular sins. And then he says this, at this very moment, you and I are either committing it or about to commit it or repenting it. So when it comes to the issue of sin, the question for all of us is always, are we repenting it? Because we're always going to be committing it. We're, we're always going to be about to commit it. But are we repenting? Are we engaged in repentance? Are we engaged in how the Bible describes repentance? Not just godly sorrow, but godly sorrow that, tr- that triggers us, that moves us, that stirs us to change. That's the repentance found in the gospel. Are you repenting it? John Owen said this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So you killing it? Or is it killing you? The psalmist, he felt like he was getting killed by sin. But, but it wasn't his own. It was the sin of, of an ungodly nation. It was the, the sin of, a, of an ungodly people. I think that's what's really throwing him off. The reality that that he is is wrapped up in the the type of sin that's overwhelming his life and it kind of seems to be outside of him. Like something outside of his control. Something he's not really in charge of. So who's this nation? Who are these deceitful people? We don't know for sure. Could be some some foreign folks who had come in and, and mingled in among the nation. It, it could be a nation that actually came in and took over. Or the ungodly people could actually be the people of God. But that didn't sound right. <laughs> I mean, that can't be true, right? I mean, the people of God are never ungodly. The people of God are never rebellious or difficult, Right? You know, it's sad but true, but throughout the Old Testament, throughout history, even down to our own church and every church in the world today, far too often we are prone to wander. We are prone to rebel against God and His ways. We are prone to pride. We are prone to sin. So we don't know for sure if the psalmist has been wrong from outside the church or if he's been wronged from inside the church. We don't know for sure. We just know he's been wronged. And what does he want? He wants vindication. He wants justice. But those, are, those are two words we hear today, right? He wants vindication and he wants justice. And where does he turn? Where does he turn for this vindication? Where does he turn for this justice? He turns to God. 
he turns to God. He says, God, plead my case for me. He wants God to be the judge of the situation. But, but why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just take matters in his own hands? Why, why wouldn't he handle it himself? Why wouldn't he go get a lawyer? Why, why wouldn't he deal with it? Why wouldn't he write some legislation to try to get rid of all this ungodliness and all these deceitful people? Why didn't he just handle it? Listen, there are clearly times when we need to take personal responsibility for situations in life, no doubt. And, and surely there are times from, from here and there and yonder when you might have to get a, a lawyer for certain situations. But the help that the psalmist needs is beyond human capacity. He needs help beyond humanity. And let's just say he did find somebody. Well, what if he found somebody who could help him in some way? They wouldn't be able to completely help him. They might settle a little bit of it, they might pass a law or pass an ordinance or, or have some kind of rule in place or, or get some people unelected and some new people elected. And, and some of it would be settled, but it wouldn't be completely settled. Imagine somebody is in front of a judge in a court and they're there on charges of running an illegal funnel cake food truck. Okay, yeah, doing the wrong thing, wrong place, wrong time, okay? And the judge immediately hands down a sentence. $75 fine, 75 minutes in jail. Okay? And so the guard comes and, and takes the, the funnel cake imposter and, and he walks him down the hall. And about halfway down the hall, suddenly in the middle of the hall, aliens appear and they transport this man to another dimension somewhere. See, the judge has done everything in his capacity to serve justice. But ultimately, because of an intergalactic intervention, interruption at the very least, justice was not completely served. That never happens with God. It never happens with God. Whatever wrong Whatever injustice exists in this world, past, present, or future, God will deal with it. Justice will always be served in God's economy. In the Old Testament, Nahum chapter 1 says this, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty un." punished. God's slow to anger. He's kind. He's gracious. He's full of love. He's full of mercy. And he is also the ultimate, final, perfect judge of all things. It's who he is. And not aliens and not family members looking down from heaven, supposedly. Not anything in this universe. Not even death. create a scenario where a person's final verdict will not be carried out. It's, it's the language that Jesus used. It's the language that God used throughout his book. So the question is, what's the verdict of your life right now? What's the verdict? Will you step into eternity as a friend of God or as an enemy of God? There are no other options. You're moving toward God. You're moving away from God. You're a friend of God. You're an enemy of God. He, he really doesn't give us other options. 
Are you living your life right now facing sin and selfishness and pride and just saying, hey, that's just how the world works? Or are you living your life right now facing love and justice and mercy and humility as the way you want your life to work in this world? Which, which way? Moving away or moving toward? The Lord is slow to anger. He is full and overflowing with mercy and grace and patience. But the Lord will not always be slow. He will not always be slow. God has made it clear in abundant ways that he will make sure full and final justice is served. If you are not a follower of Jesus... Repent today. Receive this mercy. Receive this salvation, this grace. Have, have your eternal wrath removed. And, and find what it means to be a friend of God. There's no escaping the verdict of God, and that's why the psalmist turns to him. The psalmist says, look, if, if I want this thing handled, I need to turn to God. If I want somebody to really plead my case, I need to turn to God. He, he knows there's nowhere else to turn. He knows that God is his solution. No matter what his why question is, God's the solution. That much he knows is settled. But there's some other things that aren't settled yet. Listen to what he goes on to say in verse 2. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. Get the vibe. God, you're my rock. You're my strength. You're my fortress. You're my refuge. You're my everlasting power. And then in the middle of that conversation, he says, so why? Why, God, are you rejecting me? Why are my enemies still oppressing me? God, why am I feeling cast off? Why am I mourning? Why do I feel like you're ignoring me, God? Ever been there? Ever felt that way? Felt like God's ignoring you? Felt like God's not paying attention? Felt like God is, is kind of falling down on the job? You felt betrayed or deceived or down or discouraged, depressed? Psalmist is in the middle of that right now. He's in the, he's in the middle of that moment. It's, it's bad enough that he's being oppressed by an ungodly nation and oppressed by ungodly people. That's, that's bad enough. But now, on top of that, he feels like God has rejected him. That God has nothing to do with him. He's in a state of spiritual paralysis. He can't see and he can't think. He knows God's the answer. He knows God's the solution. But, but he can't think. He feels like he's wandering, rejected in the dark. What do you need when you're in the dark? What's, what's going to help when you're in the dark? Listen to what he goes on to say in verse 3. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. A month or two ago, I was up here kind of later one night and I gathered all my stuff. I had a bunch of bags and stuff. I, don't know. I bought a bunch of food or something. I don't know. I just had a bunch of bags. 
Kind of like that, that scene in that commercial with Baker Mayfield, you know, where he's got like 10 bags on each hand. So that's kind of how it was. And I got my briefcase. And so I'm cruising down the back hall. I get about halfway down the hall. I'm like, oh, man, forgot something in my office. So turn around, all these bags. I walk back down to the office. And I'm kind of standing in the doorway, kind of trying to reach in and, and flip the light switch on because it's, it's pretty dark down there. And I, I wasn't going to be able to see a whole lot to get in. So I'm reaching, I'm flipping, I'm swiping, and nothing's happening. So I finally just like, well, this is ridiculous. So I kind of step in the room kind of in the dark so that I can kind of see the outline of the light switch there on the wall. And, and as I look there on the wall, there's no light switch. Because the light switch was on the other side of the door. Now, you'd think, being in that office for the last six years almost every day, you'd think I'd know where the light switch was. But if any of you have been around here from time to time, you know that my lights are rarely on in my office get the ocular migraines and when I leave those lights on too long I just can't handle it so I leave my lights off so it's not crazy to think that I couldn't find the switch okay Thomas couldn't find the switch he just couldn't he, he, he knew the switch was there he, he knew it was there and, and he was reaching for it he, he knows that the key of getting out of the darkness is going to be God turning the lights on for him but he can't find the switch he knows God's the solution, but he, he can't find the switch. So he says, God, please turn on the light. Please turn on the light. This, the language here that he's using, it's a language of faithfulness. It's a language that says, I know when everything else is falling apart, and I feel like God might be rejecting me, I know that's impossible because he's faithful. He's the only one I can really count on. Think of these next few words. Just listen on them. Safety, security, integrity, sincerity, and honesty. Listen to them again. Safety, security, integrity, sincerity, and honesty. You want any of that stuff? Do you wish any of those things were, were happening in your life more? Do you wish those things were happening any more in, in our country, in our nation, in our world a little more? Do you want things like that? Well, ultimately and perfectly, those things are found in one place, and that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The light and truth of Jesus has all that you need. This is what Jesus said. John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And a little later in John 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there's really only a couple of ways to look at those two thoughts from Jesus. Either they are completely true or Jesus is a complete lunatic, a, a raving lunatic. I mean, can you imagine going up to someone and that's how they would respond? Hey, Dow Welsh, nice to meet you. Hey, Dow, nice to meet you. I'm the light of the world. I'm the source of truth. I'm the only way to get to God. I mean, if somebody says that to you, you're going to think they're crazy. And yet... I hold that truth out to you as undeniably true. 
Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. There is no greater life and there is no greater light to be found anywhere past, present, future, outside of Jesus. He is the way. He is the light. The psalmist was pleading with God, I need the light. I, I, I need you to, to give me this light. He needed divine light. He needed divine truth. He knew that all of the rejection and the despair and the depression that he was feeling could only be answered if he got the light and the truth of God. So, not just 3,000 years ago, but today, what does the light and truth of Jesus do in your life? Same thing it did for the psalmist. Listen to verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Did you catch that? The psalmist, he's moving. He's, he's moving. He's moving toward God. God, send your light, send your truth. And when I get that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move towards you. And this isn't the first time he's moved toward God. It's not the first time. He, he knows what he's about to experience. He, he gets it. His language is saying that, look, when God's truth comes, it's going to remind me of what's real. When God's light comes, I'm going to be reminded of what I really need to see. And I'm going to go on this hill. And that hill is going to get me up and away from all of my stress and rejection and despair. All of these feelings that are overwhelming my life. And, and from the hill, I'm going to go into that temple. And boy, that temple is going to close me off. I'm not going to be able to hear my phone giving me alerts on social media. I'm not going to be able to hear the radio or, or hear the TV or hear my spouse or my kids. I'm just going to have this moment where I'm going to be able to see and remember the grace and the light and the truth of God. I'm going to be closed off just like I need to be. And when I'm closed off like that, it's going to move me to confess my sin. And when I'm closed off like that, it's going to move me to worship Great are you, Lord, is what the psalmist was about to sing. He knew there would be a change. He knew that the closer he got to that light and truth, that the more his despair and rejection would lift. Now, here's the cool thing about the gospel. You no longer have to go to a hill or to a temple or a sanctuary or to an altar. All of those things are now found in Jesus, the Messiah. So run to Jesus. Press your heart toward Jesus. He's light. He's the way. He's the truth. He's your life. There is no other. He's the greatest light. In the middle of his despair, in the middle of his discouragement, in the middle of this sense of rejection, the psalmist says, yeah, I need to move. I need to move toward God. God, send your light and truth and move me toward you. Can I just confess for us, that's not often the way we move, is it? 
I mean, if we're really honest, when the, when the hard moments come, when the stressful moments come, when the despair comes, more often than not, we are kind of tempted to turn away from God. We're kind of tempted to say, God, just like the psalmist, what are you doing? Why are you rejecting me? But, but we never get out of verse 2. We stay in verse 2. We, we don't get to verse 3. We don't say, God, send the light. God, send the truth. So I can go up on that hill. So I can be closed off. So I can confess. So I can worship. So I can be reminded of who you are. You know, the psalmist was a human being. So my guess is he used to do the exact same thing. He used to be tempted to turn away. He used to be tempted to, to go the other way. But there was always this one thing. This, this one thing in his life. And that one thing stirred him, compelled him to keep reaching for the switch. He couldn't stop. And what was that one thing? Well, he said it, didn't he? Exceeding joy. His joy in God was exceeding. Don't miss this. His darkness was real. His depression was real. His discouragement was real. His anxiety was real. His anger was real. His frustration was real. All of it was real. But his joy in God was more real. It was more real. It was more important. His joy in God was the priority of his life. He couldn't get away from it. It was, it was too compelling. He's dealing with an ungodly nation. He's dealing with deceitful people. Again, no effort for us to make a connection there. He's dealing with an ungodly nation. He's dealing with deceitful people. He's full of despair and frustration and rejection. All of it is real, but none of those things were his biggest battle. Whatever you think your biggest battle is today, it's not. His biggest battle was not the ungodly nation. His biggest battle was not the ungodly people. His biggest battle was not his despair. It was not his frustration. It was not his anger. It was not his fear. It was not all the things that he wanted to be different. Of everything that was happening in his life, and a lot of it was bad, and a lot of it was dark, of all that was happening in his life, his biggest battle, his most difficult question was this. Is God going to be my exceeding joy. Guess what, friend? That's our question to you. In the middle of, of all that is happening right now in the world, in our country, in your life, our biggest battle, our most difficult question is will God be our exceeding joy. Can I just say, I hope so. Can I just say for myself, I need to be able to say yes to that question. Is God your exceeding joy? It's a great way to start the